Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. So wherever in the world you might be listening to my voice right now, thank you so much for tuning in for tonight's broadcast. And tonight we are uh, going to go around the world, all the way to my home of Canada, to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And that topic is about, uh, well, something that I think should concern all of us. And it's something that's actually all around you each and every single day. It's in the air that you breathe. It's something that you're dealing with right now, something that you're receiving all the time, something that's happening inside your mind all of the time and that has the power to change your perceptions of the world. What is this mysterious force that I'm talking about? Well, it is nothing other than language. And you'll have to forgive myself, being an old English major at heart, that this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart and something that I spend time thinking about. But it's always good to find someone in the alternative media and someone with an alternative perspective uh, to the news that and politics that are taking place around us who also devote themselves to this type of uh, very important topic. It's something that so, so many of us take so for granted, the type of language in which we are steeped that shapes our political consciousness and in turn shapes the world around us. But I think it is something we should not take very lightly. So that's why I'm honored to have on the line for tonight's edition of the broadcast our old good friend, Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com. And for those of you who haven't been paying attention to boilingfrogspost.com, well, A, why haven't you been? But B, you will note that Andrew Gavin Marshall has his podcast there, Empire, Power, and People, which just keeps getting better and better every week. And recently he tackled the subject of political language and the European debt crisis. An interesting topic, any way you slice it. So I hope people will check that out. Let's bring him up on the line. Andrew Gavin Marshall, it's great to have you here tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me once again. Excellent. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about Empire Power and People, because once again, I'd just like to reiterate to people that if you're not subscribed, you really should be. It's an incredibly uh, informative podcast, week in and week out, and so much detailed information. So, Andrew, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about the podcast and how things are going now that you're 28, 29 episodes in? Yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, it's kind of shocking to think about that. But, um, yeah, it's basically just a weekly podcast show. The amount of time uh, that each show takes varies, but it generally averages around 45 minutes or so. And uh, just like the title of the show, Empire, Power, and People, the subject is quite broad, um, but it's always, uh, it's generally focused on whatever I'm researching or writing about uh, that particular week. So the past several shows have been very much focused on the European debt crisis, on Greece, on what's called the Frankfurt Group, and like you mentioned, on political language. Um, and it just really takes a very critical uh, look. It's, it's often just a 45-minute rant of mine, but um, I definitely try and fit in as much information um, and as many facts as possible just uh, strewn within my own analysis. And uh, because it's on Boiling Frog's post, um, I'm really given free reign to uh, really pursue the topics and my perspective uh, as I discover them myself. So there's no um, really, uh, there's no uh, control over what I talk about. Uh, it's totally free um, to, for me to uh, go whatever direction I please, which is uh, the most amazing thing. And um, it really just uh, allows you to 
um, explore the topics in certain detail in some cases or very broad in others but um, that's right I think it, I think it does both I mean you give a lot of good structural analysis but you also drill down into the uh, nitty-gritty details and that's exactly what I'm hoping to do tonight as we start looking at this topic of political language but on that note we're coming up against our first break so let's take a short breather we'll be right back with Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com right after these messages Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. And for those of you out there watching the video podcast, let me uh, apologize for that first segment there. I lost the video momentarily, but uh, we're back and we are broadcasting in video. So once again, the video podcast available from CorbettReport.com as a download just a few short hours after this broadcast airs, along with the show notes for the episode and all of the other information you need, including the website of our guest, Andrew Gavin Marshall, at andrewgavinmarshall.com, where you can go and find the very article that we're discussing in some length and depth here tonight. We want to talk about political language and how it shapes the political reality that we live in and can really really shape the public perception of a number of issues in in key ways. And I'm not just saying this as someone with a language fetish who was a former English major. This is actually something that we have to deal with and has been written about before by Orwell and others. And uh, I think they knew what they were talking about. But for tonight's conversation, let's take a look at an article that Andrew Gavin Marshall posted up to his website in the last few days. He posted an article called Austerity, Adjustment and Social Genocide, political language and the European debt crisis. So, Andrew, let's hear a little bit about this article and how it came together. Sure. Well, uh, it sort of just kind of sprung up uh, while I was doing uh, research and writing about, uh, well, quite detailed about uh, the various aspects of the European debt crisis, really looking at the policies of austerity and what's called structural adjustment or structural reforms, uh, looking at the rhetoric of the leaders who propose these policies, and then looking at the actual uh, policies that are taken, um, and then, of course, looking at the effects uh, of what's taking place in Europe, the reactions against these policies, what they actually result in in a social, real level for people down at the bottom. Uh, and then it really uh, sort of just kind of happened that I, I started delving more into the use of the language itself, because I mean, I uh, like you said, you're a, you were an English major and really studied this. Well, I was uh, I've been studying political science for several years, and somebody once asked me, uh, "What's the science of political science?" And I said, "It's the science of BS," because you know the first thing you learn if you graduate with a degree in political science, all you really know how to do is to talk your way through anything, how to constantly speak without saying a single thing. And it's really about how to argue your way through uh, situations uh, and issues that you may not know anything about. Uh, in classes, you're given positions to argue. You get to choose this side or that side. You may not agree with it morally or principally, uh, but you have to argue it. And so you learn to simply justify the unjustifiable, and you learn to use language. There's no class in political science called how to manipulate language to your benefit. It's just a byproduct of the educational process itself. And having gone through several years of studying uh, these types of things in school, it's if you read the financial press, which I've been doing ad nauseum for over a month now, 
um, and for much longer before then. Uh, it's really, if you don't really understand the underlying aspects of what's taking place, what the policies and effects really are, uh, everything you're hearing from the central bankers, from the politicians, it's basically nonsense. Uh, like it doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, and there's so much meaningless language, especially when you bring in the economists and the central bankers. They can go on these long tirades where at the end of it, the average layperson has no idea what's being discussed. But the actual words have so much meaning behind them. And the policies that are put into effect, such as through austerity and adjustment or structural reform, um, are devastating. And that's why uh, I decided to write this article to sort of take a look uh, at that process of how to translate political language into real terms which people can understand uh, instinctively and uh, materially in, in real terms, in human terms. So you take these otherwise meaningless uh, jargon words like competitiveness, labor flexibility, growth, uh, structural adjustment, fiscal consolidation, uh, structural adjustment program, etc. And you translate them into uh, basically the effects that they have. So the first step is, of course, to acknowledge the rhetoric itself. Uh, then you look at the policies that are implemented. Then you look at the effects. Now, if the same program, if the same rhetoric and the same policies are pursued time and time again, yet the effects don't really match up with the sound of the rhetoric, then you can assume that the, the words actually have a different meaning. Because if it's an accident that, uh, for example, you know, you look at the past 30 years of neoliberal reforms through the World Bank and IMF. This is what they did to Africa, Asia, Latin America for the past 30 years uh, and more. And if you look at the austerity packages, the structural adjustment programs is what they're called, SAPs, um, the rhetoric is all about bringing growth to countries, making um, you know debt sustainable, reviving their economies. Uh, it's all this nice-sounding, flowery rhetoric, but the effect is mass debt, massive poverty, uh, social destruction, uh, what some have called social genocide, um, and uh, just abysmal uh, situations for people. Uh, the powerful uh, do very well in systems of structural adjustment and austerity, uh, because it's a system where everything goes to them and nothing is left for anyone else. And so if you believe the flowery rhetoric that this will bring, you know, democracy and you'll live in a capitalist utopian paradise, uh, it doesn't make sense. But if you look at how the policies are repeated over and over and over again, um, then there's uh, a system in place. Uh, then what you can deduce from that is that the words, this rhetoric, actually means something different. Because uh, otherwise it wouldn't be repeated over and over again. If you make a mistake, you look at how the mistake was caused and you change the policies. But the policies don't change, so we can assume that it's not a mistake. Well, well, that's interesting because I, I myself have noticed that there is the introduction of certain words into the political lexicon at certain times when I think they want to move the agenda in a certain way. So even if we take that first word in the title of your article there, austerity, I think that was a word that was really introduced into the into the economic and political lexicon a few years ago, and I noticed that I picked up on that. And at the time, I put out a video um, about the meaning of austerity, 
and uh, and it was basically making that argument that they they have introduced this word into our everyday language so that they can introduce us to the idea of this great sounding thing austerity austere oh it sounds so great well let's tighten our belts and you know do what's best for for the society or whatever the the case may be of course all it actually amounts to in the end is uh, is basically cutting off our nose to please the banksters but uh, but it sounds so wonderful and i think this is uh, the austerity example is just one example of that but i think it happens over and over and over with these types of good sounding words that are introduced and used to cover for a host of sins perhaps we can talk about the ways the these types of words are introduced into the public's imagination. Sure. Well, I mean, like you mentioned, austerity was introduced uh, at large um, a few years ago. It was really in 2010. Um, prior to that, I mean, people in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, they've known this word for decades, and it's brought in ruin and poverty to their people. So we never really heard about it because it was only our leaders and bankers and uh, corporate executives and politicians who were pushing it on the rest of the world. So we didn't really need to know anything about it. We didn't need to hear about it unless you were studying economics or political science. Uh, it never was really uh, uh, commonly heard. But it was really in 2010 uh, that a consensus was reached among Western industrialized G20 leaders. It was at the G20 conference in Toronto, in fact, uh, in 2010, where the leaders got together and decided... Uh, what David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, referred to as entering the age of austerity. And he campaigned uh, on implementing austerity uh, programs in Britain, and he was essentially laughed at in Britain. But as soon as he came to power and suddenly the G20 said, hey, great idea, uh, he began implementing all these these reforms. And Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, the high priestess of, of uh, austerity in the European Union, I mean, she uses these uh, references to sort of Bavarian housewives who are known for being uh, austere and, uh, you know, uh, pinching their pockets. And, and uh, it's a very noble, uh, very German uh, value. And it's presented as, you know, this uh, national value. There's a sense of pride in austerity and, and all these measures. But uh, would it... Really, what really happens is that, you know, it, this word gets repeated, it goes out, all the media repeat it, and they never really define the word. And that's where the real issue comes in. It's simply accepted. And I mean, like you mentioned, this goes for a host of political words, not simply in terms of the economic crisis itself, but just if you examine the political lexicon at, at large, you know, look at words like democracy, uh, look at words like freedom, liberty. I mean, these mean different things to different people depending on how they define it. I mean, I don't think I would define liberty the same way, for example, George Bush would have defined liberty or democracy. And the word democracy is a very good example because uh, it's been redefined so many times throughout its historical usage. And in terms of the modern conception of democracy, it can be traced to uh, Walter Lippmann in the 1920s writing about public opinion he was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a very young political theorist and thinker. Uh, he was the most influential political theorist of his day. There's really no one comparable in the world today. Uh, the closest you could get is Zbigniew Brzezinski, which is saying a lot because he was far more influential back then than Zbigniew is today. And he redefined democracy. Uh, he really was the main force behind this. 
but he basically defined democracy as an elite project uh, where it was to be uh, governed by really intellectual elites uh, that through through manipulation of the masses and manipulation of public opinion absolutely well we're going to have engineering of consent exactly well we'll have to leave it there we're coming up against a break but if anyone out there would like to get in on this conversation and add your two cents we are we have the phone lines open at 1-800-313-9443 that's 1-800-313-9443 or you can tweet your questions and comments at corbett report but let's take a short breather and we'll be right back with andrew gavin marshall andrewgavinmarshall.com right after this Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall. He's available at AndrewGavinMarshall.com. But, of course, don't forget the People's Book Project at ThePeople'sBookProject.com. And he also has his Empire Power and People podcast on BoilingFrogsPost.com. So he's a little bit all over the place, and that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. So, Andrew, let's continue with our conversation here looking at this article up on AndrewGavinMarshall.com, Austerity, Adjustment, and Social Genocide, Political Language, and the European Debt Crisis. Let's take a look at some of these other terms that have been thrown around and, as you say, quite deliberately left vague and undefined so that they can become many things to many people. Let's take a look at some of the words like, uh, for example, labor uh, flexibility. What does this mean when we actually start breaking it down? Labor flexibility translates into cheap labor, exploitable labor. Um, So it's really, uh, this is a term that's mostly used by central bankers in the media. Uh, That's where you'll see its uh, most common usage anyway. Um, Politicians, I think, while they do use it, they take a couple steps back uh, because uh, for unions, for various worker organizations, labor flexibility does sound a little threatening to them. Uh, and they know this because they suffer under the results of flexibility. But basically what it means in terms of the word flexibility, it means that labor becomes flexible to the demands of the elite. Uh, so if you look at Europe, um, there's often what's called, for example, in Italy and Spain and elsewhere, it's called a two-tier labor system, where you have certain industries, uh, and this doesn't really exist in the United States or Canada to the same degree, but you have certain uh, industries which have been protected. Um, so you can't fire uh, individuals for economic reasons, meaning if there's an economic downturn, you can't start firing everybody. Uh, their protected jobs, their wages are protected, their pensions, their benefits. Um, they have all, and these are, this is of course the result of long, long struggles. Um, and, uh, you know, dating back to the 19th century. But you have, uh, the two-tier aspect comes in the, in the fact that what is existing is the unemployed youth, um, are left for either no jobs, or uh, contract jobs, internships, uh, they're cheap, they're exploitable, and what happens, what results, uh, is that you get this sort of pitting the labor against each other. Uh, so you pit the, um, the uh, unskilled youth um, against the skilled laborers, and this creates all sorts of disparities, and this is what Mario Draghi, the 
uh, president of the European Central Bank has referred to as an unfair uh, labor system. And it's unfair because you have these people with protected jobs who are so entitled, who are getting all these benefits, while all the flexibility is left to the youth. And so the solution is, of course, not to increase the protections for youth jobs and the youth job market, but it's to decrease everyone's uh, uh, flexibility, essentially, or to increase their flexibility uh, and decrease their protections. So labor flexibility means that if you're a part of a union, you won't be. It means that if you have collective bargaining rights, soon you won't. Uh, if you have pensions, no, not anymore. Um, if you can't be fired... Uh, will get ready to be fired. And uh, labor flexibility simply means that the labor force becomes uh, cheap uh, and easy to exploit. Now, if you look at Greece, uh, they're implementing labor flexibility reforms. They're doing the same thing in Italy and Spain. Uh, it's resulted in, of course, mass protests, uprisings, uh, and uh, struggles against it. Uh, but in Greece, the step has gone even further with uh, Germany announcing a six-point plan for growth, uh, which includes creating what are called special economic zones. Uh, now, in the third world, these are often called export processing zones, which are basically little corporate colonies uh, in third world countries, for example, in Jamaica or elsewhere, where you have uh, factories owned or rented um, by multinational corporations where they don't pay any taxes, they import uh, commodities, uh, produce goods in the factories, which they then export, all free of taxation, uh, no unions, uh, no striking rights, and um, basically very cheap, exploitable labor. Uh, and it's all provided by the host government. The largest one is in Bangladesh at a site called Chittagong uh, Zone, and it houses something like 137 factories. Every corporation you can imagine has uh, some sort of interest there. And it's very cheap. The average monthly pay is something like $48. Uh, and they're, they're said to be the, they pride themselves on being the cheapest labor available in the world. And so, of course, all the corporations flock there. This was one of the first uh, export processing zones created. The first was actually created in Ireland in 1959, but they really proliferated during the neoliberal era. This one was founded in 1980 by Robert McNamara of the World Bank. Um, and now Germany is suggesting that uh, they should create special uh, economic zones in Greece to help what's called productivity, which simply means uh, profits for corporations. That's what growth means as well. When politicians, makers talk about growth. It simply means profits. Uh, jobs also means the same thing. Uh, when you talk, when you hear politicians, uh, you hear this especially in American political debates. It's all talking about jobs. Uh, just change the word from jobs to profits and things make more sense. Exactly right. Labor flexibility, jobs, uh, competitiveness, all of this wonderful language to wrap up all of these horrible things. And unfortunately, a lot of people will go along with it because they never think to question the political language that's being shoved down their throats. But that's exactly what we're doing tonight. So let's take another short break. We'll be right back with Andrew Gavin Marshall right after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Can our government 
Jimmy Carter says yes, friends. Our government can be competent. Just ask Jimmy Carter. And of course, that is ridiculous. Thirty. <laughs> 40 years later, when after uh, the ridiculous nature of the Carter regime is, has been exposed. But, but it's funny uh, to, to my mind that uh, Obama, of course, is Carter Part Two, who is plucked out of the, the, the ranks by, by Rockefeller and Brzezinski, and basically the same crew come along and pluck Obama out of the ranks to catapult him into the highest office in the land, despite having absolutely no credentials for that position. And uh, and once again, just like uh, Carter was sold with a bunch of uh, hope and change, well, literally, Obama was sold with hope and change. Those words, as if they somehow had some magical magical property that could transform American the American economy and politics, and people screaming, "Oh, Obama's in power! I don't have to pay my mortgage anymore. Everything's taken care of." And of course, it was all just a, a ridiculous, unbelievable a demonstration of the point of tonight's episode of the broadcast, as we're talking about political language and how it can be used to sell people on ideas that they would never go go with if it was just told to them in plain language. So, um, so Andrew, your take on the Obama phenomenon and how he was sold like a tube of toothpaste and uh, is probably being ready to be discarded as one by this point. Well, that's actually like the perfect example. I mean, the hope and change uh, campaign if you look at the uh, public relations press, which is to say the propaganda uh, institutions of our society, um, the Obama campaign won all the industry awards in 2009 uh, in the public relations industry for the best uh, public relations campaign of the year. This was the first time that a political campaign ever in history beat a corporate uh, advertising campaign. It actually changed corporate advertising. Uh, if you if you look closely at the advertising, uh, especially in 2009, not so much anymore, but uh, all the slogans were hope and change, and everybody was borrowing from that, and everybody was so jubilant in in their uh, in the discussions within the literature of the public relations press. It was all talking. They were just so unbelievably excited at the prospect of a politician having won these awards and really changed the the game itself. And that's all it was. I mean, it was just they were they were words that were fundamentally meaningless. Uh, hope and change. Um, there was really. N- no basis for either of them. I mean, at least not change in the right direction. Hope, not in hell. But, I mean, there was really, uh, it was just a sloganeering. It was quite impressive uh, in terms of how it was done and how effective it was. But, I mean, if you look at uh, the actual campaign footage, it was everywhere you saw Obama, there was always those words very present in the background, on the podiums he was speaking at, uh, on signs, everywhere. It kind of reminds you of George Bush standing on the uh, aircraft carrier with Mission Accomplished banner in the background. He never actually said Mission Accomplished, but because it was simply there, um, that's very much associated with George Bush and with the Iraq War, uh, back in 2003 and with the so-called mistake of the Iraq War. Um, but really, it was is the same kind of uh, approach. And um, another great example with Obama was while he was campaigning, uh, he was in some Midwestern town in the United States, and he was asked a question at a town hall meeting. of uh, It was a working town. And somebody asked, uh, would you renegotiate NAFTA? Because NAFTA closed down their local factories, sent their jobs away, 
uh, and people were struggling since then. And Obama said, yes, absolutely, I will renegotiate NAFTA. Well, the Canadian elite, and by elite I mean our bankers and corporate executives and political elite, um, went insane. Uh, they just, the press was just, uh, in an uproar over the potential of the future president of the United States renegotiating NAFTA. I mean, our elite want to integrate. They're already very integrated themselves with the American elite class and indeed the globalized elite class structures. Um, the prospect of a renegotiation is just, it's insane to them. So they flipped out. And what happened in turn was that the Obama uh, campaign uh, office actually called the Canadian embassy and said, don't worry, it's just campaign rhetoric. In other words, he's just lying. And sure enough, we now see that, yes, absolutely, he was just lying. It was just, uh, you're in this situation, what do you do? I mean, you can't very well say that, no, I'm not going to renegotiate it. It was great for you. I mean, you lost your job after all. You can't really justify that to someone's face. So, yes, I'm going to renegotiate NAFTA. And then privately tell the people who actually matter, because you don't matter, uh, tell the people who actually matter that, don't worry, I'm just lying. I'm going to keep up pace with you. And in fact, if you look at Obama's trade agreements in the Pacific, they, they make NAFTA look like some sort of socialist-constructed, uh, people-driven enterprise. I mean, if you compare the corporate uh, input and um, uh, profiting to this Pacific trade agreement, it's unparalleled. It is indeed, and it's not something that I've explored a lot yet on this broadcast, so I'm going to have to uh, get more into that, the TPP, than how that's developing. But uh, it, uh, once again, if people want to get in on the conversation, 1-800-313-9443. Andrew, do you think the public is becoming more susceptible to this type of political language because of the dumbing down of society, or do you think that the, the use of these this political rhetoric as a scientific technique is becoming more advanced, or is it a little bit of both? That's a tough question. Part of me thinks that it's just always been this way um, in terms of how the language is used. I mean, the techniques for communicating the language are more advanced uh, simply by the technological advancements that exist. Um, so the language reaches more people faster, more effectively than ever before. Uh, but in the same sense, because of those same uh, technological changes, people are able to um, see around the language uh, easier, So you're not simply relying uh, solely upon what a politician tells you or what you see on your television. Um, but the language itself um, is essentially, in one sense, becoming more globalized. Um, you do have, I mean, just for example, the word austerity. I mean, it, this has become a globally relevant word uh, from a period where it was essentially meaningless um, and uh, you know this will of course change as well um, I mean Europeans they really know uh, right now what austerity means uh, currently in the United States and Canada we're clueless still we don't know I mean there's people who do know who are here um, and they don't like it but by and large if you talk to if you go out on the street and talk to people uh, about austerity they'll have no idea what you're talking about uh, but if you talk to the Spanish, if you talk to the Greeks, if you talk to the Italians and the Irish, uh, they know what austerity is and they know what it means. And they're waking up and rising up against it. And these words are now bad words to them, as they should be. Um, 
But because we are still not really aware of the actual meaning of these words, they'll be able to impose it, I think, here, uh, at least for a while. Because as it was agreed at the G20 meetings uh, in 2010, uh, declaring the age of austerity, it was for Europe really at that time to impose, and uh, North America would take its time. But now we see with uh, Canada that Harper has decided that now is the time for austerity. So Canadians will learn quite soon what austerity really means. Um, but I do think that there is that uh, uh, changing factor in terms of whether it's more manipulative now than previous. Uh, I can't exactly say. I think it's always been uh, manipulative. I think you're right, and uh, there certainly has, I think we could go back in time and even remember the main and phrases like that have been used to drive people into to wars that they otherwise wouldn't have wanted to be in, etc. So certainly I think jingoism and sloganeering has been around for at the very least centuries, and uh, we have to understand that that history. But again, I think you're right, I think that the techniques of, of manipulating and trans- transmitting that information are, is becoming more advanced and we see more uh, pushes towards uh, subliminals and then Fox News graphics and things like that to make the soft sell a little easier. But uh, let's, uh, a discussion of political language in the English language at any rate, uh, without a discussion of Orwell, I think would be, uh, would be lacking something. So let's, uh, let's think a little bit about George Orwell and his uh, seminal work, Politics in the English Language, where he wrote, uh, for example, quote, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of the political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine-gunned, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population, or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial, or shot in the back of the neck, or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic labor camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. And uh, once again, just an absolutely incredible essay. I hope it, for people out there who haven't read it yet, I hope they do so. But uh, what what does that say to our own current political day and age? Uh, from, from my own money, I think the more things change, the more they stay the same. But, uh, but Andrew, your take on that. Well, that's just what I was thinking. I mean, the uh, population transfer, pacification, these are terms that are still used today. And that essay was written in 1946, I believe. Um, so you have, uh, like you said, some things, you know, don't change. And uh, that use of political language, I mean, Orwell was talking about a declining British Empire. When I think of those words today, I think of the declining American Empire, uh, because the same terminology is, in fact, used uh, throughout the American Empire. Uh, if you look at even, uh, for example, um, defining terrorists, defining freedom fighters, um, you know, for example, the Contras in Nicaragua, uh, these were, you know... Uh, by any, these were death squads essentially. Um, drug money funded, uh, 
terrorist outfits trained by the CIA. These were, in the words of Ronald Reagan, uh, freedom fighters. They were fighting for what we call democracy, which meant dictatorship. Um, and you look at the same thing with Libya today. I mean, uh, or last year, it was the uh, democratic uprising. There was nothing democratic about it. Um, these were freedom fighters, uh, liberators. Um, the fact that they were, uh, by and large, militant, Al-Qaeda-linked uh, terrorist outfits uh, is irrelevant because those are facts. They are uh, the freedom fighters of Libya, and so that's what you refer to them as because that creates the imagery uh, that you desire. And even if you just look at uh, when the Egypt uprising was beginning and the power structure in the United States was not yet sure uh, how to approach the situation entirely, uh, you had Hillary Clinton making statements uh, calling for calm on both sides. What exactly does that mean? You know, you have a ruthless repression, a violent repression of a population out in a square who are armed basically with rocks. But Hillary Clinton is calling for calm on both sides. That frames the imagery of, uh, you know, both sides are making mistakes and having faults. Whereas, well, you compare that to Syria today, and you're not hearing for calling for calm on both sides. You're arming one side against the other. So it changes. It's, I mean, it's, you could call it hypocritical, but that implies that it has the possibility to not be hypocritical. It's like claiming that the United States uh, lies. It assumes that it has the ability to tell the truth. You can't really uh, state that your political leaders are lying because, again, I, I, it's hard to imagine a case in which they don't. That's just the way things function. Um, it's like accusing you know, an infant of lying. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense, but it's all about the imagery that is constructed in these situations. And you, again, Bahrain, you look at Bahrain, there's not even discussion on Bahrain and what's happening there. So it's not merely a matter of being hypocritical. It's a matter of how you frame the imagery. Uh, and that's done through language, as you said. And, uh, it changes from place to place, but really the game is all the same. Well, exactly right, and exactly in the case of Bahrain or, or Saudi Arabia or some of the other places where we've seen uh, unrest happening, of course, if they don't talk about it, it's like it doesn't exist. So that's another way in which the, the absence of language can be used as a manipulative tool. But, uh, but Andrew, we've been talking about the ways that this can be used for manipulation of the population and, and suppression of the population and pulling one over on the population. Is there a counter-strategy by which poli uh, political language can be used in a conscious way to actually inform people of what's happening? Is there a positive spin that people who are working in the alternative media, for example, can put on this to actually affect change in a positive way through this language? Well, I think uh, that, first of all, yes, there is uh, a way that it can be used to the benefit of knowledge, uh, to the benefit of what you could define as liberty, I guess. Um, but it really comes down to uh, an act, which is to define the language you use. It's not simply to define uh, the language being used by the elites, which is necessary. I mean, if you write a report, for example, on the European debt crisis, and it's all about austerity and adjustment uh, and what's taking place, but you don't define these terms, uh, you're not going to really be informing people. You're going to be repeating things that people can then repeat themselves. But there's no really transfer of knowledge itself or accumulation of knowledge. If you define the actual terms 
And then you can go into all the details of the policies and effects, etc. But you have to actually define the terms that are used. And the same goes uh, in terms of a general alternative uh, political ideas, ideologies, um, and uh, the concept of liberation itself. I mean, the, the words that the alternative or the resistance... Uh, media resistance populations, movements, uh, they have to also define their terms. And they don't really do this. Um, you hear a lot of talk of freedom or of democracy or of liberty. Uh, but again, these terms aren't properly defined when they're being used. And I think that that's a way to really expand the debate within the alternative media and between uh, radical or revolutionary ideas and philosophies. I mean, just for example... Uh, if you were to have a, theory, a hypothetical debate between an anarchist and a, an American libertarian, um, but you didn't define the term freedom, uh, the debate would be nonsense. Because the anarchist has a specific conception of what freedom means, which is very different from what an American libertarian uh, has as a conception of the word freedom. Uh, the American libertarian views freedom primarily in terms of uh, freedom for property, whereas the anarchist views often freedom from property, uh, from private property. And uh, if you don't properly define these concepts, the debate won't actually lead to anywhere. Well, uh, as an anarchist, I already disagree with your definition there, but <laughs> that, that I think is part of the point of real political debate, is coming to the understanding of the terms that are being used so that some sort of communication is at least possible. And on that note, once again, we're up against a break, so we'll come back to wrap things up with Andrew Gavin Marshall right after these messages. Friends, we're back here on the final moments of Corbett Report Radio for another edition of the broadcast. Tonight we've been talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com. Tomorrow night on the broadcast we have Syrian Girl lined up to talk about the latest in Syria as things seem to be coming to a head with the Battle of Aleppo. Very important uh, broadcast tomorrow night. The night after that we have Richard Heathen, who is a Canadian activist who is working on Agenda 21 and related issues Thursday night, we have James Evan Pilato of foodworldorder.com on the broadcast, and Friday night, we will be in the Friday night highlight mode once again. So, another jam-packed edition of uh, the broadcast lined up for you this week, and tonight, uh, once again, we've been talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall. Many different websites you can find him at, the main ones being andrewgavinmarshall.com and thepeoplesbookproject.com. Andrew, for people who haven't caught our uh, conversations in the past, perhaps you can just tell them a little bit about the People's Book Project. Sure. It's uh, basically a crowdfunded uh, project that I'm engaging in to write a series of books, um, a radical, critical analysis of power, looking at the ideas, individuals, and institutions of power, but also the ideas and individuals and institutions of resistance, uh, and looking at a wide variety of sectors of society, uh, looking at the social, psychological, technological, scientific, political, economic um, spheres of uh, society for the past several hundred years up until present, sort of, it's asking big questions, um, uh, what is the nature of our society, how did we get here, where are we going, why, who's driving this, for what purpose, and what can we do about it? 
And the current uh, book I'm working on is to really uh, enter the subject, and it's a look at the present-day situation. It's a look at the global economic crisis and all the resistance movements sprouting up around the world uh, against it and uh, trying to do sort of a detailed analysis of that, of that to look at really the imposition of power and the reaction of people uh, today. And then it'll go into the history with following volumes. Excellent. And you are also, of course, doing your podcast at BoilingFrogsPost.com, as I mentioned before, Empire, Power, and People, and that comes out each Wednesday, is that right? Yep. Yes. All right. So people can look for that there. Well, Andrew, Gavin, Marshall, you've got so much on your plate and so much going on that it's always difficult to keep up, but I'm glad that you are working so hard. So uh, once again, thank you for all of this. Thank you. And uh, just before I let you go, actually, I, I totally forgot about this, but uh, how is the Maple Spring turning out there in Quebec? Uh, well, right now it's a bit of a lull. Um, after Bill 78 passed, it end- ended the school semester. Um, but the school semester, which effectively brought the strike to an end for a while, uh, although at the 22nd of every month there's still a mass protest that still brings out tens of thousands of people into the streets, doesn't really get as much coverage, but it's happening. And uh, the school semester is beginning up again to finish uh, later in August, uh, between August 13th and 17th, I believe. So the strike should be expected to start back up again with it. And on the 22nd of August, I'm sure we'll see a massive demonstration in the city as well. Interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to your coverage of that as always. So andrewgavinmarshall.com. Once again, thank you for joining us on the broadcast tonight, and thank you to all of you out there for listening in. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and once again, this is listener-supported alternative media, so if you'd like what you hear, please consider signing up for my newsletter or purchasing one of my DVDs to help me going, and uh, consider clicking on that donate button on AndrewGavinMarshall.com to help him keep going and doing what he's doing. So on that note, I'm going to leave you all for another 23 hours, but until then, dear friends, parting is such sweet sorrow, but we must do it at least once a day. So thank you all for listening and take care.